Good evening. This is Cinema 60. Quel est votre nom Puisque vous ne voulez pas me répondre, mon petit doigt va me le dire. Françoise, Sophie, Louise, Suzanne, Jeanne. Ah, j'en étais sûr. Albert, elle s'appelle Jeanne. Hi, Jenna. Hello, Bart. So we're back to square one. Back to square one, we used to do Kiss, Mary, Kill. So hopefully you can understand the basics of that from the name. And then we got from 1960 to 1969. And then we ran out of decade. Yeah. So we have to start over. So here we are at 1960, wanting to do Kiss, Mary, Kill again. I think the real problem for me was that I was running out of kill picks because I tend not to watch bad movies for pleasure. So there weren't each year I, I had to... I sometimes even had to watch a movie that I suspected I was going to hate just so I would have a hate for Kiss, Mary Kill. Which was the joy of it for me. <laughs> <laughs> Truly the joy of it. And yet this is, seems to be the number one thing that Bart and I disagree on, which is that he does not like to watch things that he doesn't like. And I kind of love it, even though I hate it. I don't mind bad movies. I especially like bad movies if I can talk to somebody about them afterwards. But I don't need to go into why I hate James Bond rip off movies again but i prefer good movies you know don't don't most people prefer to watch good movies i have a lot more to say about movies that i don't like than i do about movies i do like i would say about 80 percent of the time yeah i mean you can easier to be critical it's often hard to pinpoint what's so good about a good movie, but bad movies. It's even more than that for me. The problem for me is that I don't like to dissect the stuff that I love because it kind of ruins the magic of me loving it. <laughs> yeah. And whereas it's not that I love to be negative, but I can understand and, and more easily pinpoint the reasons why I don't like something than I do the reasons why I do. Yeah. And so I have fun watching stuff I don't like. Plus, sometimes... Watching the thing you don't like, you're like, man, I love this one aspect of this movie, and I hated everything else about it, and that's really rewarding in a strange way for me. But anyhow, whatever. We're not doing it. So Bart came up with an entire game that he's going to have to explain to you because he told me like 500 times, and I still barely understand it, and we've already done the whole episode. So Bart, take it away. Okay, get this. The new game is exactly like the old game. I'm listening. No, that's it. It's it still isn't, Kiss though. Mar it isn't at all. <laughs> it's still Kiss, Mary Kill. So we each pick a movie that we think we're going to love, but we haven't seen. We've been wanting to see it. A movie that we already love. And then instead of a movie that we hate, because I couldn't come up with... I There just aren't enough movies I hate. There's a wild card. So instead of a... It's like kiss Mary question mark now instead of kiss Mary kill but but here's the kicker here's here's the here's the new gimmick we'll have a, a top 10 
ready to present to you at the end of the episode. The best movies from 1960 that we've watched on Cinema 60. I will have a, a top 10 list and Jenna will have a top 10 list and we will share with you what we think the 10 best movies of 1960 are. That we covered on Cinema 60. Of what we've watched. Yes. Easy. Simple. I wish I could have wrangled everybody into all the conversations we had before this. <laughs> now it's easy and simple. Yeah, let's do it. So previously on Kiss, Mary Kill, I used to go through all the top box office hits of the year. Just go back and listen to the, you know, our, our fifth episode, Kiss, Mary Kill, 1960, and you can hear those. With our top 10 episodes, the, all the... All the lists are going to be at the end. So we're just going to jump right into the movies themselves now. Part of the idea here is that um, we're we're picking things from 1960 to watch for this episode that might potentially make it onto our top 10 list. So there's still like bunches of of great 60s movies that are 1960 movies that are not going to be on our top 10 list because we haven't watched them. And I might I might list some some of the best movies that we really need to get to at the end. But uh, for now, we're just going to jump in. Here are our selections. Kiss, Mary question mark. I, I wish I had a better name for this game. I guess we'd just call it the top 10 of 1960 episode. My first choice was Late Autumn, Yasujiro Ozu. I chose this movie because I love Ozu. In general, I hadn't seen this, and I was hoping that I would love this as much as I love every other Ozu film. The plot is Setsuko Hara. All of, everyone, of course, in an Ozu film is every actor you've ever seen in an Ozu film. No surprises here, even in the 1960s, where he finally made some films in color. So this one's in color, which is nice. The, so, okay, this movie is about a, a, a father dies... And leaves his wife, who's played by Setsukahara, who's named Akiko, and their 20-something-year-old daughter, who's named Ayako, who's played by Yoko Tsukasa. At the funeral, his three friends come, and they decide to make it their business to, to get the daughter married off, even though she expresses explicitly that she's not very interested in dating or, or going anywhere yet they all decide, no, we're going to do this. And these are a bunch of like old men who are, you know, trying to set up a, a 20, you know, something year old. I think she's 25 or something. She's like, you know, she's an old maid, but you know, not at all. So the film just follows as each of these men decide to set her up with somebody in some way. And we get glimpses into all of their own marriages and their own lives and their own relationships with their own children and uh, yeah, I mean, it's pretty much. And they all have a thing for Akiko. They all love Satsukahara and were really jealous of their friend who got to marry her. She was like a shop girl. They used to go and buy bandages and, and pills just so they could talk to her for a few minutes at the shop when they were in school. Yeah, and it eventually comes out that pretty much, I mean, the reason why Ayako didn't want to get married is that she doesn't want to leave her mother alone. And yet she still ends up starting this sort of hidden romance with, an, with a boy because, you know, she's still young and wants to get out there. 
but is afraid of actually getting married and leaving her mom until they have a conversation and her mom says, well, maybe I could get married. Like, or rather, I think the daughter decides, what if my get, what if I start to marry my mom off so that she isn't alone? So then I can get married. And it becomes the whole thing becomes a sort of an Ozu version of a comedy of errors. Yeah. Well, except Ayako, it, the thought hadn't even crossed her mind for her mother to get married because she finds the idea offensive because it's it dishonors their father. Oh, and, that's right. And uh, you can tell how much I like this movie. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't like this movie? I, it, I, it, I, I found this, this to movie. be completely forgettable, unfortunately. I, I didn't like it at all. I didn't like this entire thing with these creepy men. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's meant to be funny. And I, and I just found it insane. And, and part of the misogyny of these men is, is definitely a point of this film. But it just felt like such a lesser Ozu. I love this movie. It's the second time I'd seen it. And it's actually, I've been desperate to watch this. Before we started doing Cinema 60, I was going through all of Ozu's sound films again, catching all the ones that I hadn't seen before. And um, I had gotten to 1959 and I'm like, damn it, I can't keep going because what if we do his 60s movies on Cinema 60? So I've been... I've been desperately waiting to rewatch this one. Um, I think I kind of had that feeling the first time I saw it, that this was lesser Ozu, but I still really liked it a lot. This time through, it's it's just another perfect, sparkling, flawless gem from uh, from Ozu. He's definitely one of my absolute favorite filmmakers. And each time I watch one of his movies, it's uh, I'm more enthralled by by his films. The problem with this movie is that it's so it feels and, and honestly, this is the problem I find with all of his 60 movie 60s movies is that they feel insanely cynical. Like I, I can't get over the like overwhelming feeling of cynicism that I get across through these movies. And it's not it's it's not that he never made movies that were uplifting before. <laughs> you know, it's not that all of his films were, were so wonderfully uplifting. It's just that you can you can see more and more as the decade is changing that he is feels more and more out of his element. And a lot of that comes through in these films and it's off putting because what happens is on top of loneliness and parent anxiety and all of the same old themes that Ozu always does. There's also this weird conservative looming shadow because he's so terrified of, of this new decade of, of people having any sort of agency and not being completely bound by tradition. And it's interesting. I mean, like, I, I don't I didn't hate this movie at all. I, this was a I, I, I like all of Ozu's movies, and I think that he is above and beyond the vast majority of filmmakers. But the way that Ayako ends up starts off as being this sort of sympathetic daughter who cares about her mother and even gets jealous about, you know, her mother being potentially married off. I, I like that's all rooted and grounded in reality. But he clearly doesn't understand why she would ever even start a hidden rendezvous with somebody. And and he doesn't understand, essentially, and, and it feels like it's very accusatory, like she already has abandoned her mother, but she's pretending that she hasn't. And so her jealousy ends up being more like of this anger. Basically, she comes across as like flippant and, and kind of shitty. And I don't think that that's fair whatsoever. And it feels much more like Ozu's judgment on her than it feels like a real character beat the way that that it's portrayed. Mm. 
And there's even like all these like you get all these older people in this movie making disparaging remarks. And it's very like one off and quick. And it's something that you would expect from older people. So like, again, it's not out of character completely. But, you know, like there's that line about like Elvis Presley being, you know, and like all these kids, they go out there and they they party. And I don't, I don't understand this stuff. And it just feels it just feels like it's coming right out of Ozu. Like it feels like he's he's becoming just discontent. And a lot of his sadness is like hurtling into anger. and he loses me in that. Well, first of all, every Ozu movie is cynical. All of them are examining the rotten side of human nature that we all have. And, you know, he's gentle about it. His movies are so restrained and calm that, I, I mean, that's part of what I love about it. His cynicism catches you off guard because you don't expect such cynicism and melancholy in, in these movies that seem so gentle. But I, I don't think this is out of keeping with any of his movies. And and I don't think he's doing anything differently because it's the 60s. Um, I, think, I think there's a big difference between cynicism and depression. I would call his movies depressive. I don't think that they're cynical normally. Look at Tokyo's story. I mean, that it's so cynical. Like you've, Kids are all such assholes to their parents, except for the daughter-in-law. I mean, that's the whole point of that movie. But anyway, I don't. That's, I, I also find Tokyo Story to be one of his lesser films. Whoa, come on, <laughs> big time! It's not my favorite at all. No, I know. I know that's like the the like sight and sound one, but like that's the, I I don't really. It's fine, but I don't even that one I find isn't nearly as cynical as these '60s films. Hmm. I think the problem with the 60s films is they seem super old fashioned. And I think it sort of works. It, it's definitely calling back to an earlier style of Japanese filmmaking. And I think that's kind of cool in a way. Like you've got all of these, you know, Oshima, Japanese new wave, crazy movies coming out. And you've got this you know, very steady, old fashioned Ozu has always been super conservative. He's always been on the side of the older generation yes. and, and their like confusion over these these modern girls. I mean, the modern girl figure is in every single one of his movies. And it's always this mixture of being really amused and entertained by her. In this movie, it's uh, Ay Ayako's friend Yuriko, Mariko Okada, who's in a lot of Japanese new wave films. So it's sort of... She's she's perfect to play the modern girl. And she's I mean, she's the life of the movie. She's the most fun character. And Ozu clearly loves her, but also clearly doesn't really understand her. And but that character is in all of Ozu's movies. This this modern woman who confuses and entertains all the all the older people. So I don't I, there's really nothing much different going on in this one. Wait, now that I'm thinking about Tokyo's story, Tokyo's story, you're wrong about those kids being assholes because the father's a drunk. No, I think you're confused. Yes, he's a, he's an alcoholic and his kids are like, you know, over that shit. I think that that's that Tokyo. We're not going to talk about Tokyo's story, but it's <laughs> it's much more balanced. Whereas this movie has a lot more of just like dumping cynicism on these young people that are, you know, being seduced by pop culture kind of a like that's a level of like, I, it's not that I'm I. Of course, Ozu's always been a conservative filmmaker. And he's and again, he's like completely stuck in a tradition that tortures him. And yet he knows nothing outside of it. And that's part of what is really appealing about him as a filmmaker and part of what's so appealing about the worlds that he explores. But 
Yeah, I mean, well, Yuriko as a character is interesting because at least she gets more sympathy and empathy, I think, than typically this sort of character does. I feel like she is the one thing in this movie where he is giving, he he's offering like an olive branch to this character as like, okay, you're still young and you can be crazy and you can do whatever it is I don't understand that you're doing. But as long as you realize that at least you have to take time out of your life to come back and visit someone else's mom. Yeah. <laughs> keep one foot in in the traditional and one foot in you know the reality though he it, it seems very tentative it seems like we'll see how long this lasts sort of you know like that kind of is is how it it feels at least he he is extending some empathy to this character where you know the other daughter i forget whose daughter it is but there's another daughter in this movie that is you know just totally useless and and everyone like tells her to her face that you suck <laughs> well first of all i don't I don't uh, buy your interpretation of uh, Tokyo's story, but at the same time, he dumps on the older generation in all his movies too. In this movie, the three old middle-aged men who all want to want to get with Akiko but can't because they're married. Well, there's there's the one who hadn't who was who's also a, a, a widower, and it dawns on him, hey, may, maybe I could marry this woman. Most of this movie is focusing on the flaws of these three guys who are just screwing up the lives of of the the mother and daughter here like he's not in sympathy with these guys like he identifies with them he clearly sees himself as one of these older generation dudes who's no he doesn't he's never saw himself as a man in any of these movies he's satsuko hara (laughs) <laughs> which in in this movie he says i've had enough he walks away that's him giving up that's him saying i don't get you guys and i'm just i don't care anymore and i'm, I'm tuning out he loves satsukahara and that's why he does amazing he's you know he's like bergman his uh and actually in a lot of ways he, he just loves his female characters and gives them so much to do but i don't think he identifies with them he identifies with this with the scumbag males absolutely not films. (laughs) absolutely not because he because he how how he admits that they're scumbag guys he knows that these guys suck you know they're and they're treating women terribly there's no way that he identifies with those guys well i think he he recognizes his own flaws and sees his flaws in these men and that's uh and that's what he's putting in this film but he also you you say he's not sympathetic to uh, Ayako for getting so upset that her mother is going to get married, but it's not like he's. These are themes that he's played with in all his movies, and and in fact, this movie steals a lot of the plot from Early Spring and and an earlier film where Setsukahara plays the the daughter who you know the friends are trying to marry off. And uh, she's living with her father, who's a widower. And, you know, it just he he repeats a lot of plot lines and, and explores them in different ways from movie to movie. But his, his movies are caught up in nostalgia. Like that's that's what's key to him being like, that's that's what I find so appealing about his conservatism. Like all his movies have this idea that things were things were better in the past. Like he has this idealized past, but he also understands that it's only because those times are gone that we can see them with rose colored glasses or, or whatever. Like I, that's a big part of why Ayako in this movie is so offended that her, her mother wants to move on and why she is so conflicted about moving on herself. You know, she has this idea that, you know, this perfect family that never really was perfect, but in her mind it was perfect, just her and her mother and her father. 
And if she gets married, if her mother gets married, like it's sort of breaking up what's left of that, that family unit. And, and that's what's so upsetting to her. It's not so much that she can't, she thinks her mother can't, you know, survive on her own or that even, even that she's that worried that her mother is going to be lonely. I mean, that's, that's part of it, but really it's just this idea that I want to hold on to the past for as long as I can. And that's why these characters don't want to move on. And that's the case in all of these Ozu movies. And I love, I mean, I, I connect to that. And I think this movie has a, a lighter tone in a lot of ways. It comes off as a, a comedy way more than early spring does for sure. And it's mainly because of these three dopey old dudes who are, who are screwing everything up with these people's lives. But I think my second time through these Ozu movies, I'm really appreciating the the comedies more, like really, you know, the way that he's sort of able to laugh at, at human behavior. It's in a way it's less cynical than his earlier movies, like Tokyo story, because he's, you know, his, his ability to laugh at these old guys is, you know, has, has more of a hopeful feeling to it than, than when he's just saying the, the asshole kids in Tokyo story never, you know, never redeem themselves. The, you know, the the father has to, well, you know, here we are talking about Tokyo Story. Again. Uh, yeah, We're no, I, I, <laughs> I'm honestly, you're like blowing my mind how differently we interpret. Like, like, I do not agree with you whatsoever <laughs> <laughs> on anything you just said. Like to me, Ozu, I, I mean, there, he, yes, that he, he clearly is, is stuck in, in the past. I don't think that he has such a rosy nostalgia for the past as much as I think that he has this idea that romantic love is secondary and it's like, it's like a band aid, and it's like a, a, a lesser replacement for your original and irreplaceable love, which is between you and your, your parents. And so he doesn't understand why you would even like bother trying to, to throw away what you currently have uh, in order to to like replace it, like you've already achieved enlightenment. Like, why would you leave the mountain? Like that he does, he fully doesn't understand that. And there's a codependency in in that, and like a I would say borderline unhealthy level of anxiety and fear about leaving what he already knows, which informs every single one of his films. And there's also a resentment towards the same thing because he is, you know, that that attitude is shunned by society and he doesn't understand why. And I think that all of his movies are sort of exploring the his basically is agoraphobia in a, in a lot of ways, you know, and, and I don't necessarily think we're saying different things. We're just coming at it from a different perspective. And I also think that Ozu acknowledges that you do have to come down from that mountain eventually well because they die they, <laughs> but he they die and, and things don't stay like that's the, the main theme of all of his movies right the things change things never stay the way that they are they can't forever and we have to accept change eventually like that's that's his major theme so i i think taking that idea and, and applying it to what you said is basically what i'm saying i don't like the way you said it <laughs> But we have we like literally have to move on. Otherwise, yeah. we're never going to get through this episode. So what about your choice? The Naked Island, directed by Kaneto Shindo.
who is famous for his ghost stories from this decade, like Onibaba and Koroniko, which are both great. I like both of those movies, despite not being much of a horror fan. I think they're they're great and atmospheric. This is the first movie of his, I guess the third movie of his I've ever seen. But I was curious to see it because it's not a ghost story, ghost horror film at all. Uh, it's about a poor family who live on an island and are eking out uh, a meager existence by farming on this dry land, you know, some kind of grain, wheat or something. Life is real tough for them. There's a mother, a father, and two young boys. One is old enough to be going to school. The other is not. And uh, it just, like, there's no dialogue in this movie. You, you get some songs, but no, but no dialogue at all, which is great. I, I, I like the idea of that, and that's part of why I really wanted to see this movie and why I thought this might potentially qualify as one of my top 10 films of 1960. And it, it did end up blowing me away. I loved this movie. I thought it was fantastic, and it was not like anything I'd ever seen. It really gets granular about how these people have to how hard they have to work to survive and you get so many trips um, of them like crossing from their island to the mainland to to get fresh water or to bring the grain that you know to their landlord who 90 percent of what they grow they end up having to give in sacks to their their landlord who is you know allowing them to to, to eke out this meager existence on their island you know, there's very little joy in their lives. The one moment of pleasure in, in each day seems to be when uh, when they have their bath at the end of the day and can get some of the sweat off of them. Like, in the, and the boys are just as invested in in this work that they have to do just to survive. Like, there's very little playing around. You know, in, in the off season, they get a little. The two boys get a little time to to play. You know, when there's like a. Uh, a celebration in, in town, you get to see them playing with swords a little bit, but otherwise there's just very little pleasure in these people's lives. It's just a day-to-day -day routine. It's um you'd think that would be a really boring movie to watch, but it's it's fascinating. There's not a whole lot of story about uh you know two-thirds of the way through something major happens. You understand why this story is being told and uh, what the point of it all is but uh, really it's the movie is an uneventful examination of how much life sucks and how hard life how, how hard it is just to get by from day to day and i loved it yeah i actually love this as well and funny enough i i knew about this movie but i didn't know the name of it because literally i want to say a decade or more ago, I, I'm like I when I was in college, even I think my father was telling me about these. Oh, like I saw these Japanese movies. One of them I realized was was Women in the Dunes, and the other one he described as like a completely silent film with just people going back and forth to an island to get water. And I remember at the time thinking like, well, that is why people don't like foreign films. <laughs> <laughs> it, there's that stupid meme that goes around of that. I'll, I'll be very friendly. Uh, I'm sure a very lovely uh, teenager who was making fun of like, you know, well, I don't want to see a black and white movie about the Latvian government told through the eyes of a pigeon and just want to watch Marvel or whatever the hell the stupid meme is that like constantly goes around. 
This is like the movie that that people like that who know literally nothing about movies or why people watch movies and probably doesn't even like watching movies. Uh, this is the kind of film that that they're talking about. And yet, if you watch this movie, it's it's insanely brilliant. And I wasn't expecting that at all. I, I went into this just because you chose it. I didn't even really look it up. And then when I started watching it, I was like, oh, my God, this is that movie. <laughs> <laughs> that my dad couldn't remember the name of that has has haunted me even in description because I thought, well, it sounds terrible. Uh, and I'm, you know, like I'll watch black and white movies. Uh, like that's not it wasn't that I was avoiding it because it was old. It was more that like, you know, movies without dialogue that are not silent films. That's not like something where I'm like, great, let's let's watch. it. <laughs> Sorry, it's just not my thing. But this one gets just so visually entrancing, like you barely notice the lack of dialogue whatsoever. Yeah, it's it's funny that you talk about this uh, alongside Woman in the Dunes, because that in some ways this movie reminded me of that, where it's really focused on the land and and the you know textures of things. But whereas Woman in the Dunes is really sort of, you know, it's got an absurdity, surrealness to it. It's, you know, it's about you know, these these same sorts of people who can, you know, are barely surviving on the like, you know, shitty work that they have to do every day. But there's, you know, there's a sensuality and a, you know, exoticism to uh, to women in the dunes that this movie is totally lacking. Like it's it's uh, it's so real. It's so you're so like, you know, just in, invested in the in the harshness of these people's lives that it it's a a totally different effect. So it's it's sort of interesting to watch the you know think about the two movies side by side and how they're you know, have have sort of the same you know milieu, but are do totally different things. Well, they're both about fulfillment at the end of the day, right? They're both really about asking like asking the audience to examine what it is that like how we define fulfillment as it applies to to modern existence. I mean, like. This is a, like a it's a distillation of, of every single human struggle from like creation and pain and tedium and working together and purpose. And, you know, it's everything is happening in this one story of this miserable family's existence. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it, it's brilliant in a weird way. It's almost sensual because of the fact that it's just the whole story is told through touch. You know, I mean, from everything from the the carrying the weight of of buckets of water uh for you know up a hill to you know hand pumping the the steering on the ship as like this like awful little like <laughs> you know piece of wood that is barely floating that you have to sit there and hand crank to get you know make it move a half centimeter and if the wife there's one scene where she as she's carrying these insanely heavy buckets of water on her back like a like cattle and she trips and off this really steep hill and she trips and she ends up uh, knocking one of the, the water buckets over. She just sits there and stands there and waits as her husband places his water buckets down, stands back up, walks over to her and just slaps her so hard across the face. And, you know, she she's like waiting for it. She knows this is what happens. And you get the sense that this is just their di this is their whole dynamic. They're like little kids run around and, and also seem to know they know exactly what their function is on this island, which is to like set up breakfast and do all these little like chores kind of things while their parents have to go constantly to this other island to get 
like non-salted water to then bring back and water these crops of these crappy little plants and it ends up being wildly fascinating. And even when you're seeing them do the same thing over and over again, I mean, it's shot beautifully, which of course is a big part of, of why it's so entrancing, but yeah, it's, it is, it's so tactile in the same way that, that woman in the dunes is, but instead of it being sensual or sexy, you know, like this close up of sand on flesh or this, you know, swip, sweat dripping down people's bodies when they're having sex. Like this is like, it's a real focus on the, you know, sweat dripping down people's bodies, but it's all in the service of just showing you how difficult this life is. So what was fascinating to me was that I'll, I'll, I'll watch movies that have so much more going on in them, so much more story, so much more plot. And I'm constantly looking at my watch. Is this, is this almost over? How much longer do I have? Like this movie, I was, it only crossed my mind that I wasn't looking at my watch at all to see (laughs) when this movie was going to be over. Like I I was, I couldn't believe how absorbed I was in this thing where very little is going on. It's sort of, you know, like a, a Jean Dielman sort of thing where you're just waiting for that, the tension of one little thing being out of place, one little thing going wrong. Or, you know, in this case, like those, these tiny moments of happiness that these people manage to to have, you know, very infrequently. And you're just waiting for that to happen. Like there's one one scene, you know, which almost in a movie like this is kind of a spoiler. At one point, they're, they manage to sell a, a fish that the boys caught. And then they get to like <laughs> go out, go out on, on the town and, you know, have a good time. And they all yes, dress in a nice. restaurant. Yeah, and, and go up a mountain and and uh, and and see the sights a little bit, and it's such a a relief when that finally happens. Like it's you feel the burden of these people's lives, and when they get when this scene happens, it's like finally you can you can relax a little bit. And uh, I don't, it's a as you said, it's it's a brilliant movie, a must see. It really is a must see. It, I, I mean, personally, I would say that this was relentlessly bleak. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even at the end of the day, it might depend on who's viewing it in a way. But I just found this to be like a crushingly existential film. <laughs> yeah, perfect. <laughs> and just like, you know, as you said, it's like it is this microscope on just how pointless life is. and yet, And yet we still do it and we need to do it. And the necessity of the pointlessness of <laughs> everything we do, but uh, yeah, it was it was wonderful. So now we get into the movies that uh, we'd each seen before and knew we're going to make our top tens of nineteen sixty. We just hadn't watched them yet. And uh, what did you choose, Jenna? I went for easy breezy, <laughs> purple noon. <laughs> by Renee Clement. It is basically the talented Mr. Ripley, which um, I will say, so I watched this for the first time ages ago and it absolutely blew my mind when I first saw it because it was just this perfectly like, I hate the word sumptuous, but it really is. Like it's just one of these like decadent films where just visually everything is absolutely gorgeous from the cast to the setting (laughs) uh, with this great, 
undercutting of cruelty that runs through the entire thing and in anxiety and insecurity. So by the end of the film, you don't even know the main character's full name throughout the entire movie until about, I would say, two thirds into the movie or even further, where suddenly you realize, oh, his name is Tom, Tom Ripley. (laughs) (laughs) I actually haven't seen I've never read the book and I never saw the the Matt Damon one or whatever. So I didn't know the story when I first saw it. And I was really blown away by the ending. I thought it was just super clever. And and again, for how the way that it's all set up and for the anxiety, rewatching it, it, it does take away a little bit of that just because it, a lot of it was sort of the shock of it. But anyhow, I mean, the if you don't know the plot of the talented Mr. Ripley, it is that we have uh, they're all meant to be American in this movie, which is silly because everyone is clearly not American. But um, Tom Ripley, who's played by my boyfriend, Alain Delon, you know, he, he's on the the yacht of his wealthy, crappy friend. <laughs> or is he? Uh, oh, or is he a friend, you mean? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's there's even like Ripley is such a schemer that he has you know caught up with his old friend, uh, oh, yeah. Philippe. And uh, says, "Oh, you remember you remember us from from grade school?" And it's not even clear that 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 Philippe even remembers him, and if he really is this old friend of his. But anyway, yeah, and and you know, but either way, Philippe takes him. He he likes the cut of his jib, and and he you know is basically keeping him around as an accessory, and uh, brings him on his yacht with with his fiance Marge. And I mean, it becomes clear early on that Tom wants to be him. And they're in a perfect cinematic scene. We catch Philip walking in on Tom as he's dressing in Philip's clothing and sort of like trying to seduce himself in the mirror (laughs) as you know, and it's like this perfect, just longing, wanting of somebody who doesn't have, you immediately know who Tom is. You're like, Oh, this guy's a bit of a creep, but also, you know, that where he's coming from as somebody who, who is just coveting every single thing that Philip has. And then Philip of course is, uh, immediately turns cold to him where once he was like, Oh, you're my buddy and my best friend. And now he's like, what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> and uh, yeah, so there's this dynamic of course on the yacht where, you know, the, the fiance doesn't like Tom whatsoever. And Philip now doesn't like Tom. And so Tom, uh, he schemes, he creates a, a disruption uh, between the fiance and Philip by basically dropping a, an earring of a woman that he was sleeping with. I mean, Philip's not a good guy. Like, no, he's you don't really feel bad for him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's why this movie works, because uh, the person that Tom is scheming against is uh, is an awful person, is an awful rich asshole. Exactly. And so he causes basically, well, but then Philip take, I mean, Philip does something unforgivable to his fiance, which is that he takes her thesis, which is of course in 1960 is hand typed on a typewriter and he throws it into the ocean. And she says, I'm goodbye forever. I hate you. And I'm leaving, which is what she should say. And once they are left alone, uh, Philip starts saying, well, you know, you were trying to take my like identity before I caught you. And so what would you do if you were going to do that? And Tom says, this is what I do. And he stabs him in the heart. <laughs> <laughs> and so the rest of the film, we're, we're pretty much following Tom as he is trying to take Philip's identity and yacht hop around Italy and spend all of uh, Philip's money. And of course, that, that gets tricky as people, there's other rich jerks 
in the area who hear that, oh, Philip's in town and try and go search for him. And yeah, as I said, I just, everything about this movie is, is just gorgeous. I mean, it's just really beautiful looking and there's a Nina Rota score, which is, which is great. There's, um, there, there's something very cold and calculating in the filmmaking here, which really helps deepen the character of Tom. And I think that's really what I like about this. It really puts you in his shoes in a way that's not even comfortable. Like it's a very like anxiety attack film. Mm -hmm. What do you think about it? The first time I saw this movie, you know, years and years ago, I, I thought it was perfection. I, I loved it. I hadn't seen it since and watching it again, knowing what was going to happen. It, it didn't have the same impact. Like you were saying, I still think it's, a great film and everybody needs to see it once. I just wish it's a thriller and it's about, you know, is, is he going to get away with it? Is he not going to get away with it? And once that tension is gone, you still see the you know expertise in the filmmaking and how it accomplishes what it accomplishes and how it's really playing with, with your sympathies and who, who you're supposed to be identifying with at any given time. You know, Marge is no great human being either. Like yeah. she, she she should have dumped Philippe's ass long ago, but she still is connected to him and won't give him up. And and, you know, she's also a snooty rich girl or, you know, formerly poor girl who's gotten used to this rich lifestyle. So none of these people are, are good people. But the way it plays with your sympathies is is really fascinating. But here's my question for you in your in your cinematic hall of fame. If you could just say one scene, the, the scene of Alan Delon kissing uh, Monica Vitti through the window and Leclise or uh, Alan Delon kissing himself in the mirror in this movie, <laughs> which, which would it be? It would have to be Vitti. Yeah, that one. That one has more meaning. That's a deeper scene than this one. But I do. I mean, I love I love him kissing himself in the mirror because it just it it it. It staples in again this idea. This is like how how beautifully dressed up this entire movie is, but with this ice cold center. You know that the hollowness of him kissing himself in the mirror, what he's trying to gain, and you you sort of see the the chasm inside of him in that moment. You know, like and so it's just a it's just a perfect little like it's not a violent scene by any means, but there's a violence in that scene, in a strange way. And and so when everything that happens after that happens, you're like, yeah, I, I see where it's coming from. Like, it's not a surprise that Tom has the ability to just like stab somebody. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I mean, Delaney just he does a great job of just being completely paranoid and intense and, and yet giving the impression that he's prepared and in control. Like, you really do believe that that he's always one step ahead, even though it's sort of a precarious situation. And then the the depths to which he is willing to sink to make this work for him is is like a little bit awe inspiring. <laughs> <laughs> What's interesting is that we this movie is written by Paul Gegoff, who also wrote the Chabrol movie Les Biches, which we watched uh, in our Sapphic Cinema episode, uh, which is a remake of of the talented Mister Ripley with a gender swap version. So it's uh, I just think it's interesting that that it's the same screenwriter and how he has uh, has readapted the same story. Uh, you you don't like Le Biche at all, but, uh, but I, I wanted to. <laughs> but I think it's pretty stylish and great. And Paul Gegoff, 
also wrote the next film we're going to talk about, which was my pick for, oh, it's absolutely got to be in my top 10 in 1960 film, Les Bonnes Femmes. Directed by Claude Gibral, who also directed Les Biches. So it's it's all it's all interconnected here. Les Bonnes Femmes is about these uh, three shop, well, four shop girls, and they're looking for love. I mean, really, there's not a whole lot of story going on. It's sort of you, you sort of get a little snapshot into each of these women's lives. Rita is, is the fourth and you get a little less about her because she's got a fiance. So she's not out with the, the other girl, good girls, um, you know, have, having fun. We don't get as much of her story, but the theme of her story is exactly the same as the theme of the, the other three women's stories, which is that men suck. They're all predators who are just after one thing, you know, and it's female nature to perpetuate that pattern like that men as predators and women as prey sort of uh, pattern that has uh, existed throughout time that seems to be Chabrol's thesis here but you're clearly on the side of these women who are just looking for something to fill their lives you, you see a lot of them you're know, bored at their shop no customers ever come in they're selling kitchen appliances but there are these four attractive women plus the cashier who are just in this constantly in this empty store and you know, have nothing to do. They're clearly only there because the owner who is you know, another, another shitty man uh, has, has hired them because he likes having attractive women around him. Yeah. And, and they're just living They're They're constantly watching the clock just to like get out of work and do whatever it is they're going to do, which is also really unfulfilling. They don't know what they want from life other than they want love. They want to be loved and they want a man to take them away from all this this boredom in their lives. And Jeanne, played by Bernadette Lafont, you know, she's sort of the party girl and will will go home with any scummy man who hits on her just, you know, for something to do. She's dating the soldier who who can't be there that often for her because he has to go back to base. So she, but she she like fool around with other people and she's just, you know, looking for a good time. Jacqueline is the the new girl at the shop who uh, is is kind of a, a kind of prudish, doesn't like to go out and party much. But there's this uh, this biker dude with a mustache, kind of looks like a young Robert De Niro, who uh, is always following her, and uh, she's kind of obsessed with him as, and he's clearly obsessed with her, and she's not interested in any other this this nice guy delivery boy who wants to go out with her she's not interested because he's just too milk toast for her and she she just wants the danger of this motorcycle guy she doesn't know what his story is and she's just waiting for for him to make a move and you know tell her oh i've been following you because i'm in love with you and that eventually happens um Jeanette is uh stefan Nodron, who is i don't know if he, she was married to claude chabrol yet but uh she they make a ton of movies together in the 60s and and they are married for a while uh and she is we don't really know what her story is she wants a good time but it turns out that she is a a singer 
and is does not want any of her friends at the shop to find out. You know, she's not after the love of a man necessarily, but instead the love of the masses, I guess. So like she's still, she has this, this need for love, to be loved, but uh, n- not in the same way the other the other women are. Um, and then Rita's fiance is just a, a, a rich dink who doesn't care about her at all. But uh, we just followed the adventures of these four women in Paris um, being harassed by men and each man they come across is worse than the last. And I love this movie. <laughs> it's now this is a cynical movie. This is this is about as cynical as they get. And this is this is Chabral at his best, too, I think. Like this is a combination of being, you know, just the cynical sense of humor of his. He's this has this movie definitely has a thriller aspect to it because the whole time you know that things are gonna go wrong. Like they're just getting mixed up with these these awful men and you know something awful is going to happen and you're just sort of waiting for it to happen the whole movie and it, it rides that line really well but i also think these there's something really engaging about these these four friends who you know are not even really friends they just happen to work together and they're sort of convenient acquaintances and and they you know end up doing a lot of stuff together and uh yeah it did we finally sold on chabrol after watching this film I actually think that I was sold on the fact that I don't like Chabrol. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really like, very, but I like this movie, but I, I don't think like Chabrol comes across to me through his filmmaking as somebody who everyone would be like, Jenna, you got to meet Chabrol. <laughs> you guys have so much in common. You're going to love each other. And then I meet him and we both like hate each other. <laughs> like that's kind of how it feels because I keep trying. Like I like his cynical sense of humor. I like the topics that he chooses and I like the the plots that he chooses. I like a lot of the actors that he chooses. I hate how he makes movies and I don't know what the hell it is. And I like this movie and and but I I have like really mixed feelings about it. it like as a cynical critique on how men treat women and like what little women have to look forward to, especially in 1960, it's super solid filmmaking. But the problem is that even though it's critiquing these men, it seems to get into their heads better than it does the women's heads. Like, we don't really know. We don't spend enough time with these women alone. And we're like, it just feels like we're always observing them. In that way, I feel more like we have more in common as the audience with with stalker guy (laughs) than we do with any of the women. I think that's intentional. Like even the scene at the zoo is very, very much supposed to, like there's a long that scene was... where they go to the, the zoo and we're clearly supposed to see the parallel between us watching these women uh, on the screen like they're watching these animals in their cages. Brilliant. Yeah, which is that was like bullshit sin- like symbolism to me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's such a joke. Like I, that's why I love it. It's like it's it's just really having fun with that idea without taking it too seriously. This movie bugged me in the same way that Cassavetti's husbands bugged me because mm-hmm. it's just it's just hard to watch. Like everyone's horrible. And and even the funny stuff is so cynical that it it's just I found it just sort of difficult to sit through, especially like those scenes where they're going on and on about this there's these two guys that we see the first thing in the movie, these two creeps in a in a car who are catcalling to you know, two main characters and they end up getting in the car. And of course these guys are awful. 
and they come back later. There's a scene in a, in a public pool where these guys show up and they just start bullying everybody. And it's clear. I mean, they're not meant to be, you know, they're, they're clearly villains, you know, I mean, they're just pieces of shit human beings that <laughs> deserve death. Like, I don't know how else to say it. Like they are awful. Uh, and everybody hates them. And, uh, but you have to sit there and watch a, a 10 minute scene with them just being awful. And I just don't, who is that meant to be convincing? I guess it's meant to convince men. Look how shitty you are when you think you're being funny. But I mean, that doesn't do much for me as a female viewer. I, I mean, I, I like the length of that film. Like, I think the point of it is just to heighten the tension. It's when you think like they're going to let up and they'll stop dunking our main characters underwater and not letting them breathe. And, and, you know, it just goes on and on and on. And the longer it goes on, the more tense you feel like what, how, you know, it's sort of the idea is the helplessness of, of women against men. It's like, what do, what do we even do? Where do we find the power to, to stop this? And I, I think that is part of why I love Chabrol so much um the, the same reason you don't like him very much is that he really likes to push <laughs> push buttons and like he he goes he's willing to get really awful just for a laugh and i i laugh when when things just get so unbearably awful and tense that there's nothing you can do but laugh and i think that's that's the worst thing in the world for you when you're watching a movie. Well, it's just like, you know, like, Hey, don't you think it's terrible that these guys are bullies? Like, yeah, no, I, well, the second they walked on the screen, I thought they were terrible. Like, I don't need 10 minutes. You don't have to convince <laughs> me for 10 minutes. Like that, that's my thing is just like, all right, get on with it. Like, I, I know like, and the thing I, I also feel like he really missed out on. I, I like this reveal that happens where we realize that again, that these women aren't, as you said, friends and, I really wish that he had given us a clearer portrait of their dynamic together. Like we see them all bored working together. And I love the scene where um, I don't remember any of these characters names, but where, where the, the singer, you know, she's going out on stage in a wig and, and she has a whole act prepared. And this is like the one thing that she's been waiting to do all day, all week, probably. This is the most exciting part of her day. And she looks out and she sees her goddamn coworkers <laughs> in the audience and she freaks out and she's, I don't even like these women. This is the one part of my day where I don't have to spend with them. Like I live with them. I work with them. I hate them. And that was great. I love that. And I wish that we could actually have seen a little bit more of their like dynamic together on their own because we, we get a lot of like movies about groups of guys who were kind of toxic for each other. And, you know, when they're together, they're, they're toxic, but when they separate, they sort of have these like existential crises about like, you know, Oh, like actually I do like to, to be nice sometimes, but only with this one girl. And then like, you know, I go back to my, you know, group dynamic and, and that happens with women too, like, of course. And so I, it would be, would have been really nice to see more of that in this, I think that that would have helped to really elevate it and maybe even cut some of the just hit you over the head about how horrible men are stuff, because it's just like, it's, I don't know. It's like, it's almost a given after a while. It's like, I don't need to be re I don't need that to be reinforced. <laughs> It'd be more interesting to sort of showcase just that the reason why these women are going to these men is because of the fact that they actually don't even know how to deal with each other either. I mean, like, I think that there is, there is more nuance to it other than just men suck. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole that 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 scene you're talking about is like really brings across the 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 idea that for Jeanette, these women, that's her name, Jeanette. Jeanette yeah, um, that 
that familiarity breeds contempt. Like the, her, her friends from work are excited that she's on stage and just want to go and pat her on the back and say, that's great, Jeanette. But you know, the fact that she's like, I just, this is my one thing that I don't have to share with them. You know, we we're, we're thinking, well, why, why do you have to be that way? Jeanette, these are people who, you know, they, Oh no, They're, Bart! These these friends were not happy to see her. They were making fun of her immediately, and that's what she was afraid of. I the know. The first thing but, they said was, as, "Oh my God, <laughs> is that Jeanette?" Like that wasn't a that isn't a "Oh my God, it's Jeanette." Like they were they were not that was not a friendly. And then they realized when she didn't want to come out and see them, then they were all like, "Oh, great job, <laughs> Jeanette!" You know, like that was and that was well done. I mean, I like that. I, I thought that was a, a pretty accurate description again of of your friends who. And and the fact that they all hate each other in part because of the fact that that it's again it's a ref, they're all a mirror of how miserable they are and and you know again like that sort of male dynamic that we see a lot more often in cinema than we do the female version of it. But I guess what I was saying was that as the audience were were wondering why Jeanette can't just you know these these friends they they want the best for each other they really don't care about each other's lives that much but at least there's. You know, each each one of them is, you know, hoping that that the other person is find finds the right man or, you know, there's a, a, at least, you know, some sort of like camaraderie there where where nobody wants failure for the the other. And I don't know, I, I guess we we sort of want as the audience, we want that sort of friendship between them to develop and, you know, take the place of this constant search for the, for this man, you know, some mysterious man who will who'll take them away from everything. And, but Chabrol very consciously doesn't give us that and even comments on the fact that, that there's, there's no way that this can happen with this particular group of friends. And I think it's just another, another great cynical touch in the film. It was definitely, I'm glad I finally got to see it. It's one of those things I'd been meaning to see. So so now we're in the uh, the the wild card part of uh, of Kiss Mary Kill, which no longer has a kill. We each sort of picked a movie at random that, uh, for whatever reason, we we wanted to see. And what did you pick? I chose El Cochito, the wheelchair, directed by Marco Ferreri. El Cochicito. Oh, I took Italian. <laughs> chose this yeah on a total whim though i will just say as an asterisk that in kiss mary kill the point isn't that you always want to kill the kill the point is that it's a hard choice that's why you're playing the game but um i chose this because the description sounded intriguing i like black comedies and i i haven't seen that many spanish films which is what this is and and uh i don't know felt it just sounded intriguing to me for whatever reason <laughs> <laughs> well that's the point it's sort of a pick pick a name out of a hat sort of sort of idea. You know why I chose this is that there's there's been many a time in my life where I see a movie and I feel like this is the same thing with Yelp reviews and this is my advice to you is that if you see something with a three and a half star review you know across the board above average but not necessarily great sometimes that's where the absolute best shit lives hmm. and the reason why it has three and a half stars is because it's polarizing. And if you're the type of person who watches it and then you say, oh, my God, 
this was the best thing I've ever seen, then that is so much more satisfying than like sitting down and watching like the Godfather or, you know what I mean? Like something that is, and I love the Godfather, but just like a movie that's like a, a, a universally five-star film or whatever. And so there was just the, between the description of this and the, the sort of like this IMDB rating of seven, <laughs> uh, I, I just figured it was worth a try. It was actually pretty interesting. I, um, it's about a elderly man who's named Don, uh, Anselmo, who is played by Jose Isber. Pepe to his fans who we've seen in multiple films, uh, first cinema sixties. So that, you know, it's kind of nice. He's the executioner in the executioner. Exactly. He is, you know, retired. He lives with his entire family. He is a widower. Well, he's the movie starts where he's going to a funeral of a friend, you know, everyone's again, he's like in his seventies, eighties, like, you know, everyone's dying. And, and so he's seeing his world narrow and narrow. And uh, one of his friends, Don Lucas, shows up in this motorized wheelchair. Don Anselmo is like super fascinated by this wheelchair, like because because it's motorized specifically. And it just seems like the coolest accessory to him becomes completely obsessed with, with getting this, which they call a coach throughout the entire film. And he realizes, oh, my friend who needs the wheelchair, he can't use his legs and seems to have this little group of of other friends that are in wheelchairs and Don Anselmo is just so lonely that he again yeah becomes obsessed with like I need a wheelchair he goes to his son first he starts to pretend that his his legs he's in poor health much more health health than he is and he goes to his son and his son says you know I'll I'll get you a doctor and the doctor says no you know if you're you know if you get put yourself in a wheelchair you're going to atrophy your legs like you don't want it it's not a good thing to, to want to be in a wheelchair if you don't need it. It's going to make your health worse. And uh, of course, that, that really pisses off Don Anselmo. And so he starts begging his son for one. He starts shopping around and, and saying, oh, my like nephew needs one. And, you know, and the sales guys, of course, are thrilled to, to try and like land the sale. And yeah, so it becomes this sort of bizarre, dark comedy about this this elderly guy just trying to like use every scheme to get a wheelchair while, you know, his whole family says, like, what is wrong with you? Like, they're half of them are upset because they, they you know, oh, grandpa, we want what's best for you. And then the son's really nasty to him. But you sort of get the sense that this this comes from partially a place of, he you know, his father keeps calling him cheap. You know, his father isn't terribly nice to his son <laughs> either. And the son says, no, you have this is all you do. And you have the one thing. And so. Um, I don't want to spoil this movie. I, well, I mean, it's hard to not spoil it because it, basically at, by the end of this film, everything starts to ramp up and ramp up to a point that the last 15 minutes of this movie or 10 minutes even shocked me, like really shocked me to a point where I was actually like much more intrigued than I had been even up until that point. Let's go ahead and spoil this because I think there's something about the ending that's a little open for interpretation and I'd like to kind of get your take on it. The thing that that I really kept coming back to with this movie before we spoil it was, and, and, and this is again, like it sort of, it starts off kind of like plotting and, and dopey and you think it's gonna, it, it's gonna be a lot gentler than it, it ends up being. Because it really ends, it ends with like a wild bang. But um, what I ended up really appreciating about this movie, number one, having an elderly anti-hero, I thought was really intriguing. Because he's, you kind of hate, you, you like Don Anselmo and you're sympathetic 
to him in the beginning. And by the end, you're like, oh, you are not only like a toxic, horrible person, you were very likely this person as a father, which is why your son treats you the way he does. <laughs> but really, like it just kept bringing me back to the fact that there's three steps of adulthood. And the first, you know, is recognizing that your parents are flawed. And the second, the idea that being an adult is a choice and, and not something that happens naturally. And then the third one is this idea that even like old wrinkled people can still be stuck in that same mindset that they had in high school if they don't make that choice. Or revert back to it. Yeah. Once you realize those three things, I feel like you are at least, you have at least achieved the beginning steps of adulthood <laughs> mentally, whether you're prepared for any of that. But these are like real truths about life that you just don't, it, or at least I think, that, I think this is kind of universal that like it, it's something that you, everyone naturally comes to realize, but you have to like stop and realize it because otherwise you, it can pass you by in a way where like you get caught up in the moment, the desire or like the humanity of it. And, and you don't realize what's happening intellectually. And that's what this whole movie's about in a lot of ways. And that's what really intrigued me about. I, I actually, in the, I don't know, I don't think you like this movie so much, but that that part of this, that aspect of this movie, and especially the ending of this movie was really interesting to me. I wanted to like this movie a lot more than I did. I liked the ideas behind it. I liked all the stuff that's definitely in there that you're talking about right now. And I also like it's it's directed by Marco Ferrari, who's an Italian, but he made his first three films in Spain, I think. This is the third. And after this, he went back to Italy to make his movies. And this movie has that, is definitely in that Commedia Italiana style. You know, a lot like The Executioner. It's like you, if you didn't hear them speaking Spanish, you might just assume that this is an Italian film. Yeah. And there's even more reason to think so with this one because it's an Italian director. But it's got that sort of lighthearted family dynamic with a real, you know, that has teeth to it the way that a lot of Commedia Italiana movies do. And I love that. And so this this movie, like right off the bat, had me. I'm like, oh, I, you know, I love being in this world. This is great. But then it just sort of dips into this this absurdity. Like I understood that for Don Anselmo, the having this this coach, this wheelchair would you know, he'd be able to, you know, spend more time with his friends and it represents freedom for him. Like he can get away from this family that has sort of seen him as, you know, they trap him in this room with his granddaughter who's trying to learn French and he can't get any peace and he can walk, but he can't get very far. He doesn't have a car. And, and you know, this this wheelchair means that he can sort of go wherever he wants to go. And I like I like that idea. But then it just gets so deep into this fetishism of this motorized wheelchair it becomes sort of absurd and surreal and i think it stops working like when it goes to these wheelchair races and you know it's like this whole world is created around this you know it, it sort of pretends that there's this like huge motorized wheelchair culture happening in the world and and by not having his own wheelchair uh, donna and selma doesn't get to be part of it and and take it that sort of takes me out of the the reality of what's happening in the way that you know a lot of commedia italiana really sticks to you know, sort of a, a spinoff of, of neorealism in a way with, you know, with added cynical con comedy. But this just sort of takes you out of the reality of what's happening. And I had trouble like connecting to Don Anselmo because this his need for this wheelchair just seemed a little crazy and petty. And I, I stopped 
caring, <laughs> you know. But that's that's because of... he is he is crazy and petty, and that's the genius of it is that the movie starts out and you think, oh, this is very it's sympathetic, you know, like here's an old guy where he's de- he's going to deal he's dealing with something that every single human be- being is going to deal with, right? This idea that everyone you know starts to die and you're still alive, the inherent isolation of of getting older, so you feel for him. But then what you start to realize as, as as the movie goes on is that this guy is bad. He's a bad person. <laughs> he's, you know, he's not a good person. I mean, the way that he uh, becomes super obsessed with with things like you realize just how controlling he is as a person. He's not grand. You know, he's not doting old grandpa. He, he was probably a tyrant as a father. And in his old age, he's still a tyrant. It's just that now he has more sympathy because he looks old and frail. You know, which again, just goes back to this idea that just because someone has wrinkles doesn't mean that they're not the same shitty 17 year old that they always were. You know, that doesn't mean that they've done any of the work or growth just because they've they've been alive for 80 years. You'd think that that would come with some level of perspective, but it doesn't. It just doesn't. It's not a it's not a necessary thing. It's it's a choice, you know, like and, and that's what I really enjoyed about this. I mean, there's a scene where. He starts freaking out. You know, the son comes and, and yells at the 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 guys that are selling the coach. And he says, you're taking advantage of my father. He's elderly. He doesn't have money. Like, you know, stop feeding this information to him. And then the father just starts to, like, beg. He turns basically back. He reverts into a toddler and starts screaming and crying. He refuses to move. He says, I'm just going to lay here and die. And he says, you made your father cry. You're a terrible son. And his son's like, you're crazy. <laughs> and then, and then, you know, and here's the, the spoiler. He's a psycho. <laughs> he is. He is crazy, you know? And, and that's what I mean. Like, he's a true antihero is that in his fit, he goes to the bathroom and he puts eye drops in his eyes to make it look like he was crying even more. And then he sees, oh, there's a big b- bottle of poison. And he takes the poison and he just pours it into the, the stew that's cooking on the kitchen that the whole family is going to be eating. And I and I also get the sense that he takes a swig of it before he does that, which then apparently this movie had an ending that that had to be changed because of government censorship. And you know what the ending was. The ending was that everyone he kills everybody in order to get his wheelchair, which is not that out of it's. I mean, that's not out of the realm of possibility for a, a kind of like controlling toxic father. You know, especially this sort of uh, Spanish machismo. It does feel like the ending that this mo- movie is aiming for, where it wants to go, you know, to have him kill off his entire family. I'm not sure I would have liked the movie any better if it's, you know, if it was able to keep that ending. It does seem a, l- a little more in keeping with what uh, Ferrari's trying to do here. Yeah, instead they're sort of forced to to say the thing, which is that they have a cop, you know, he's trying to like leave the country and the cops catch him. And they're like, these things happen when you're 14, not when you're 70. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, no, we, uh, we could have, we could have gotten there without you explicitly saying it. Yeah. But I don't, I don't know. I, I didn't like love this movie, but I was actually, I was just delight. I was kind of delighted by it. The performances were, well, the one performance, this really is the, the Pepe Isber show. And uh, and he does a great job. I always like to see him show up. But uh, my yeah, I think I'm just not a Marco Ferrari fan. I haven't seen that much. Like uh, La Grande Bouffe is one of my most hated movies of all time. <laughs> and I have you know made a point of not seeing anything else he's done because I dislike that movie so much. So I was I was curious about this one, like go back to an early one and see if I could sort of, you know, work my way up to 
figuring out what Marco Ferrari is all about. But I don't think, like, I think he sort of reminds me of Bertrand Blier, another uh, French director that I really dislike, where he's, you know, he's got this bad boy thing. It's like, you know, I'm cool because I'm going to do whatever the hell I want in this movie and you're going to love it because I'm such a bad boy. And something about that, you know, a director who has that kind of drive that just doesn't, doesn't rubs me the wrong way. I'll have to see more Ferrari to be sure that that's what he's up to. But it really seems like he wants to shock and you know, show you what he can get away with because because he can. That's it's interesting because I don't disagree with you as far as Legrand Booth goes, which I, I also that like there's something I think intellectually satisfying about his cynicism. But I'm surprised that, that this is this is the level of cynicism that you don't like. And this is like the level of cynicism that I kind of enjoy intellectually, whether or not I enjoy watching a, you know, two hour movie of men eating and fucking themselves to death. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's it's uh, it could be the subject of a, of a book that both of us are so cynical, but we, we like it uh, delivered to us in different ways. So much like what I was saying about Marco Ferrari, about how I have saw, saw his, uh, you know, quote unquote masterpiece and didn't get it, never wanted to go see any of his others. The, the movie that I chose was The White Dove, Hulubis, uh, directed by Franchek Vlachil. Marketa Lazarova, which is named the, the greatest Czech film ever made. And uh, have you seen Marketa Lazarova? I don't think so. Uh, it's, I mean, it's a three hour long historical Czech film and it's beautiful to look at. Like, it's an amazing looking film and I feel like it's my fault that I don't love it. But it's one of these things where it's so, maybe if I knew more about Czech history, I would have been able to follow what was going on. But it's just got all these characters who are talked about and you don't necessarily know which character is which and and like just following what's going on is impossible and you have to just sort of sit back and luxuriate in the visuals or you'll get nothing out of this movie and i kind of got got not much out of that movie I, I know i need to see it again but this is another one where i, I said well maybe if i go back to an early film by by franchek Vlachil. I'll understand what he's all about and it'll prepare me better for when I see Marqueta Lazarova again or I'll I'll get it. But this this is one of his first, I think his first feature film. It's more about its theme than it is about what happens in the film. It's it's about a, a white dove that gets released from a cage in Belgium by a young girl who sees this dove as as her pet, but knows it's time for to migrate to to the south because it's that time of year. Its other home is in the Mediterranean on this island where its other quote unquote owner is Suzanne, another young girl who you know just waits every year for her dove to come back to the island. But this year, the dove gets lost in a storm and ends up in Prague, lost, and lands on the windowsill of a struggling artist. A, a lot of this movie, it, it's such a visual I mean, there's dialogue, but it's also like stylized dialogue and it doesn't tell you much about the plot and who these people are. It will, you know, quote poetry and sort of give some basics about what's going on. But it is a little hard to follow in a way like by the end of the movie, you know exactly what's happened and what's who's doing what and why. I, w I was actually kind of fascinated by the movie, just trying to figure out what it was all about for a majority of it. 
and you know by the end i thought oh that's that's all there is to it but but basically this artist gets this inspiration from the dove and starts to draw it but then this boy in a wheelchair from a lower floor shoots the bird with a bb gun and it falls all the way down into the lower courtyard in this apartment building and um the artist is upset and goes and gets the bird and brings it to the door of the boy he doesn't know who it was who shot it and, and knocks and and said so the mother of the boy answers the door and and he says is there somebody in your house with a gun and just shot my bird the kid in the, the wheelchair he's like you know 10 or something he just shot it out of boredom but when he's presented with this critically injured bird is upset and so the, the artist and the boy try and nurse it back to health and all the while we we go back to Suzanne on her Mediterranean island and her brother sees how upset she is that her dove hasn't come back I think it's her brother like it, at times it seems like there's there's something a little romantic going on between them but at one point he calls her to come get dinner ready so I, I think it's her brother but anyway you get a lot with these two like beautiful blonde young people who are probably siblings <laughs> I, I feel the same way and um you know and she the brother gets her an, another dove and and she's grateful but there's another old man whose dove doesn't doesn't come back and she she gives that dove to him because she's really she's confident that her dove is going to come back to her and so yeah i mean that's the, that's the whole setup the I mean, it's it's just a visually incredible. So it's another movie where of of Latchels where you're just supposed to luxuriate in the visuals and just be in awe of of these shots. And it, it you are. It's incredible looking. At the end of the movie, you realize, oh, this is kind of a just a simple metaphor. This dove represents hope. And the whole movie is if you love someone, let them go. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, basically, it's that. Movie. Yeah. <laughs> I really did like it, but I was hoping there was there would end up being a little bit more to it than there ended up being. But it's a short film, so kind of watch it with that in mind. You you won't be sorry because it's it looks amazing. Yeah, I'm fully with you. This ends up being the sort of art house film that I don't like as an adult. You know, like there's I was talking before about like the idea of art house films that turn people off and turn you off when you're young and stupid. But like, this is the reality of the art house film that kind of bores me where, as you said, it looks gorgeous. I mean, this movie is stunning looking. There are so many beautifully composed shots. Every shot looks beautiful. I, I really, I mean, you've never seen a, a cement courtyard look so beautiful. <laughs> I mean, it's so dynamic looking and, and there's so many beautiful like dreamlike sequences that happen where, um, you know, especially in that Mediterranean beach town where the girl wakes up in the middle of the night and she opens the door and walks out and looks like she's walking into the ocean. It's just this gorgeous shot. I mean, the, and every, I, I don't know, like, I mean, it, as you said, it's short, it's like an hour long basically. And, and um, I don't think there's any reason for why you as a cinema lover wouldn't enjoy seeing it. But, um, but the thing that bums me out, you know, again, is just that, as you said, it's just so simplistic. It's just about humanity and art. <laughs> mm -hmm. it's really simple kind of thing and but it's shot so beautifully i mean there's this one the scene where the artist sees the dove he lives in this sort of glass um apartment on the top of a building and he sees it and he starts to draw it and then it gets shot and so then later on he feels inspired to continue to draw this dove and the way that they show this is from behind the paper which is a brilliant shot i mean like we're, we're seeing somebody basically painting on glass 
Uh, and it's meant to be this print. He's making a print block uh, of the dove that we then watch him as he does the whole thing. It's just really cool. Looking. Well, inspired by the mystery of Picasso, obviously, which came out you know, a couple of years before that. You've, yeah. you've seen that, right? You yes. know, Picasso's painting on glass and just keeps painting over it. And yeah, I mean, it's effective. And I, I admire this movie for figuring out a way to to work it in work that technique in because it wouldn't fit in many movies it does look really cool. yeah and it, and it makes sense i mean it, it, you know we see that we see this artist doing multiple multimedia art he, he ends up sculpting the boy like a full-size clay statue of this boy and when the boy disappoints him he like kind of takes this wire and cuts the face off of the clay statue which is like way creepier than it's meant to be but um but then the face reappears at the end and for some symbolic reason well, yeah, because the boys, you know, he, he becomes selfish. It's like with this whole thing, he's even in a wheelchair because he he is just he got injured really badly. But what he, what ends up happening is he sort of gains the sphere of of his friends, and and you know he doesn't want he he was peer pressured into doing something stupid, which is why he ended up being badly injured. And the doctors are like, you can walk. There's no reason why you can't. But he just doesn't want to leave the safety of his apartment and and uh, and the wheelchair nurturing this dove back to health he he realizes the importance of spreading your wings and and getting out there and going back and trying again and we we're sort of see there's a point where the artist is like all right we gotta let this dove go and the boy doesn't want to do it because he he's grown attached and that's when the artist becomes frustrated but i mean it's like he's not gonna like yell at this poor boy who's mm-hmm. clearly has issues you know we see him lose faith and then and then everybody you know they grow and yeah, yeah. The, the symbolism can be really pretty on the nose and it sort of feels a little pretentious at those times, but it, it's also, it's also an art house check film from this, from 1960 with like a jazz score. It's like, if you can't do yeah. that shit in this kind of movie, where can you do that shit? <laughs> yeah. I, I wish more movies would try it. You know, n- nobody is making a movie like this nowadays and I wish they would. I might call it, a little pretentious, but I'd still love to see it. Yeah, agreed. Uh, so that's it. So based on these movies that we watched for this episode and everything else we've watched so far for Cinema 60, Jenna and I have created our top 10 of 1960 list. Do you want to do yours first or, or should I go? I just want to start this and I'll probably say this every single time we do one of these is that I kind of hate top 10 list. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's why I'm making you do it. It's fine to rank stuff. I just, um, the thing that bums me about the idea of top 10 is this idea that, that there is one version of something. And of course that's not what we're doing here. And that's why I think it, it at least, uh, you know, agreeing to do this where we're both giving different top tens is kind of nice. And also the, the narrow scope of this, I think is the other nice thing is that we're only doing movies that we've already covered. And um, if you go on the website and you search for that movie, you can see what episode we covered it in. It, it gives a snapshot of where we are right now. I mean, I think that's all top tens are. I would I'm not very interested in finding out what movies people hate. But if somebody is championing a, a not very well known movie, if they put it you know, on, on their top 10 list, you know, best movies ever made. I'm going to check that movie out. I might not like it, but at least, you know, the fact that somebody is willing to go out on a limb and say, oh, yeah, this movie is better than thousands and thousands of other movies I've seen. Like that's it's useful. It's helpful. Plus, I'm just obsessed with lists. So I I insisted we do our top tens for every year and they're incomplete, may have 
may have jumped the gun a little. I, I I'm afraid that our list might be a little similar just because there weren't a ton of movies to choose from. I thought we'd have sort of a larger body of, of, of work to, to choose from, but uh, it, it seemed a little limited, but let's, let's find out. Let's see. Let's see how similar our lists are. Number one, letter never sent. Number two, the warped ones. Number three, La Ventura. Number four, Purple Noon covered in this episode. Number five, Saturday night and Sunday morning. Number six, Rocco and his brothers. Number seven, the Naked Island covered in this one. I, that was a surprise one. I wasn't didn't expect it. And Bart, you got me. I think this is that's the only movie of, of all the ones that I chose and watched. It's the only one that made it to the list other than Purple Noon, which I knew was going to be on this list. Number eight, Bells Are Ringing. Number nine, Psycho. Number 10, The Fugitive Kind. Hmm. Well, there's they are a little more similar than I'd hoped, but uh, I sort of already kind of knew which of the ones that I picked were going to show up on your list. So uh, so here's mine. Number one. Best movie of 1960 that we've watched so far on Cinema 60, La Ventura. Two, Le Bon Femme from this episode. Three, The Naked Island also from this episode. Four, Psycho. Five, Late Autumn from this episode. Uh, six, Strangers When We Meet, which you didn't like very much, but that's uh, the Richard Quine. That would have been my number 11. Really? Yeah, okay. I liked it. I just didn't love it. Seven, Rocco and his brothers. Eight, The Warped Ones. Nine, Letter Never Sent. And ten, Innocent Sorcerers, which I wanted to give some love to. I Maybe if I was being a little more honest, I would have put Purple Noon as number ten. But Innocent Sorcerers, I I think about a lot. It's that Polish movie, the Andrzej Wajda movie um, that's you know very French New Wavy, written by Jerzy Skalomowski. And it's... Uh, you know, just two two young people who are trying to see if they can fall in love, and I want I wanted to get that one on there because because I think about it a lot. That would have been my twelve, I think. Yeah. Did you come up with the worst movie of nineteen sixty that we've watched so far? Cinderella. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that was your kill pick for nineteen sixty, the Kiss Mary Kill episode, the, our first Kiss Mary. Kill All right, episode. the Millionaires. Yeah. I, I would have put the millionaires, but I didn't I technically didn't watch that for this episode. That was in our mega <laughs> Sophia Loren episode, but that's a terrible movie. But what I went for instead was from the terrace. Which Yep, I, yeah. I, I could see <laughs> you know, I could see some people not hating that movie, but it's really just not a movie for me in any way, shape, or form. I, I think I disliked from the terrace about as much as the millionaires, but the millionaires definitely wins out. Yeah. But there's also there's so many I mean, I, I also I won't I won't bore you with going through it, but I also made a top 10 of the movies from 1960 that I've seen that we haven't covered on this episode. And there's a lot of good stuff. A so lot. we got to get we got to get to Aju and her friends and Breathless. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Zazie Don Le Metro. A lot of my favorites. La Dolce Vita, The Entertainer. Peeping Tom. We'll get to him eventually. The apartment actually was the one I was like, we didn't cover that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So maybe in another four years when we when we're back to 1960 <laughs> again, uh, we'll, we'll give you an update of our, uh, of our top tens of 1960 and see how they've changed it all. But until next time, go buy yourself a motorized wheelchair and have some fun. 
Yeah, may all of your doves fly freely. How do the, how do doves know uh, or like carrier pigeons? How do they train that? Well, it's part instinct and part yeah. I don't know. Don't you, you have to like carry them to one place? Like, how do you know they're going to land in the other place specifically? Like, I can understand how they learn to get home from a crazy place, but I don't understand how they know to go to one specific place. <laughs> well, I think they have to go there on their own, but then once they're there and somebody has like made a nice home for them, they're like, okay, this is where I'll come again next year. Maybe they just all go like they, they, one of them figures it out and then they all put go in the flock or something. Yeah. If you know how birds work, please, please reach out. That's, that's what my takeaway from this episode is. <laughs> Uh, and I hope we get to watch the the other two Ozu films that uh, that he made in the '60s before he died, so that I can convince you that uh, that his '60s movies are just as brilliant as as all his others. My review of Good Morning on Letterbox has some crazy amount of likes. I have like two hundred something likes for my review of Good Morning. I'll have to read it. It is very short. Is it about farting? One thousand <laughs> percent. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.